Planning for my business used to feel like an all or nothing proposition. Either I stuck to the plan or I failed. Either I hit my goal or I went back to the drawing board. And worse, I'd get really down on myself for not being good enough to stick to my plan or achieve my goal. But here's the thing, this attitude wasn't helping me at all as a business owner or as a human. I needed a different approach. So I tried different systems, researched different software, and bought different planners. But nothing really landed with me. And I ended up getting frustrated with myself again. So I decided to build my own blueprint for planning and goal setting, an unconventional approach. I got rid of goals and I focused on commitments. I got rid of rigid plans and focused on strategic priorities and the projects I'd use to move them forward. And you know how I started to feel? Completely relieved. And for the first time, in control of where I was taking my business and how I was gonna get there. Now it's been years since I started building this system. I've improved it, I've shared it with others, and I've gathered more data. And now it's time to share it with you. The Commitment Blueprint is a 100 plus page program guide and workbook, as well as an interactive planning and project management template. It's a game changing system for giving your goals and plans structure without rigidity. Go to explorewhatworks.com slash commitment to learn more. That's explorewhatworks.com slash commitment. what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. It's one thing to get your business to a point that's stable and sustainable. It's another to make room for big projects like writing a book or building a new offer. And it's yet another thing to carve out the space to work on creative projects that may or may not even bring financial benefit. Hey, I'm Sean McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how small business owners are building stronger businesses without the shoulds or the supposed tos. It's those big projects, the business-related and the not-so-business-related, that so many business owners dream of being able to spend time on. Sometimes we put them on the calendar, block out a weekend here or there, but then life happens. Some quote-unquote emergency bleeds into the time we've set aside. Other times we dwell on the daydreaming. Pinterest boards are created, notebooks are filled, research is done, ideas are floated past significant others or mastermind groups, but nothing material ever comes of it. While Tara will gladly tell you that I'm a huge fan of daydreaming, I also want to make at least some of those dreams a reality. Last week when I talked to Jaquette Timmons about finding the perfect blend of your work days and weeks, I mentioned that one of the things in my particular blend is working on art throughout the day. I love that I've developed a working life that allows me to simultaneously kick butt and take names producing podcasts. At the same time, I'm exploring my passion for visual art. It's taking commitment, experimentation, and a lot of work on business systems 
not to mention some serious mindset work to get even close to that place. And that's exactly what I wanted to talk about with today's guest. What does it take to be able to carve out the time and energy to pursue big creative projects? Jessica Abel is the founder of The Autonomous Creative and the creator of The Creative Focus Workshop. She's also a cartoonist, author, and educator. She helps all kinds of creative people juggle the work that pays with the work they dream about. Our conversation isn't so much about taking a break from work entirely. It's more about taking a break from one kind of work to focus on the projects we so rarely make time for. Jessica and I talk about how her work has evolved over the years and how she's been able to juggle so many projects herself, as well as the patterns she's noticed among creatives, the routines that can help us make sense of our time and how she paces herself. Now, let's find out what works for Jessica Abel. Jessica, can can you give us a rundown on what each of your ventures entail? Well, I have a company called Autonomous Creative, and uh, our mission is to lead lead the conversation on creative autonomy. And creative autonomy meaning giving creative people the power over their lives and careers that they crave and is so often denied. Um, And I have two primary routes through which I do that, uh, two group coaching course programs. One is called the Creative Focus Workshop. I've been doing that for almost almost six years. That is a course that's um, intended to help creative people take those projects that they're dreaming about off the back burner and make sure they get done, even in the midst of really complicated grown-up lives. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of um, uh, there's I hate the word productivity because it's not about productivity. Productivity is about cramming more things into the same amount of time, and that's not what we're about. It's about conscious decision and deciding what you're gonna be doing and taking control of your schedule and all these kinds of things. I don't talk about this when I'm trying to market the course because it doesn't make any sense to people in that context, but it really is about executive function. That's what the class is, is like how to develop your executive function in, in, this, in the realm of your creative life. And of course, it also applies everywhere else. Um, that's and fascinating. This, I would eventually yeah. love to hear more about that. Not right now, but eventually I'd like to hear more <laughs> about that. Yeah, no, it's a great course. And initially we I offered it cohorted through um, a course pro, uh, platform and then had Slack discussion groups. So it went for you know a few weeks or whatever. Um, but the thing about it is when you're developing executive function, when you're taking control of your creative life, it doesn't end at the end of five weeks or eight weeks or whatever it is that the course is being offered live, it goes on long term. So about two years ago, I migrated Creative Focus Workshop inside a mighty network, which we call the Autonomous Creative Collective. And then people who, um, when they join, they get uh, three months in the collective as part of their you know, course, but then they can join as alumni and stay. And so mm-hmm. we have a really powerful, just just kick-ass group of people in this mighty network. It is just the most, (laughs) they're the most generous people, you know, and there's this, the culture is of a lot of honesty, vulnerability, supporting each other. And and we've also started encouraging and seeing a lot of peer-led events 
So co-working and discussions and various kinds of other events that help people connect to other people in live formats, which has been amazing. Um, and then about a year ago, I launched a new course uh, slash group co coaching program called Authentic Visibility, which is focused on messaging, like learning messaging for a creative person. How do you talk about what you do? How do you define the value of the thing that you do, which is just such a problem for so many people who are in creative fields. Like, I, you know, I make romance novels. What's the value of romance novels? You know, and trying to, <laughs> trying to get over that hump. Like, yes, there's a lot of value in that to people. They love it. So let's talk about it. So how do you talk about that? How do you explain it? How do you figure out who the audience for it is? How do you find them? Put it in front of them. Build your audience and potentially make money, you know, could be a thing. Sure. So yeah, so two main programs and then an overall uh, community that sort of is the big container for that. You've got a lot going on. Always. <laughs> Always. The thing that I wanted to talk with you about predominantly was when you have that much going on, when you have so many different projects professionally, how do you find time for your own creative work. Are you very intentional about the way you approach this? Well, I mean, to be fair, right now, this is my creative work. This is what I do. I have shifted my focus in the last few years onto building this business and creating something that hasn't been seen before, which is a creative act. Building a business is a creative thing and really demanding. Things I've never done before I've been in the dark forest any number of times with it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Arguably sure. still am. And that is my creative work right now. Yeah. And I'm in a stage right now where I'm starting to have certain aspects of this, not nailed, but systematized. You know, I'm doing what I'm doing and starting to think about bringing back in purely personal work just into the mix. Um with no, and this is the big difference for me, with no intention of publishing or showing or finding an audience for that work. Oh, interesting. Um, it's always been the case for me, as long as I can remember, that everything I did had to feed into some project that was meant for public consumption. So I remember, you know, when I was, and it didn't necessarily mean money, mm -hmm. but it meant publishing and distributing and whatever. So I remember when I was in my 20s and I was working in administration, like, you know, as a um, administrative assistant at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago for several of the, the associate deans, the assistant deans, um, I got access to classes there. <laughs> and so I took um, a bookbinding class, for example, and I took a printmaking class, I took an offset printing class, and they were great. And they're undergrad classes, like full, full on. And um, when I did the printmaking class, what I printed were posters for the comic book I was working on, you know, to basically marketing, advertising things. And they're also fine art pieces in that they're handmade and, you know, all this stuff. And I had very much that kind of intentionality behind it. But also, literally, I was sending these out to comic book stores that are ordering my book in order to put them up on the walls to sell my book. So. Sure. Very a lot of merged stuff around that. I took a class in painting materials and techniques. I'm not a painter, but you know it's a really it was a great class where I went through and learned you know how to make rabbit skin glue you know sizing and how to I've done a, a 
all kinds of different paint techniques. So we did oil painting, we did acrylic, but we also did um, egg tempera, which I loved. It was so fun. Um, so I made an egg tempera painting based on or uh, referencing a Botticelli painting, the Madonna of the book. But it's my character, who is the sort of cover model of my book, Art Babe, with a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an egg temper painting that then got used as a cover for one of my comics. Everything was utilizable in some way and sort of, it, I didn't, and this was something that in, after a while I started to question, why am I not doing things that are purely experimental looking for, you know, some artists really work that way. That's really important for them to have personal work that, I mean, in some ways, everything feeds into your professional work and into your professional life, but work that isn't intended to be, it's its purely R&D, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I've almost never had that in my life. I've almost never had room for that, really. Like, I just filled up all the room with projects that were for the world. To your benefit, it seems. I mean, in some ways, but I also think that there's a real drawback to that, that I, di- I didn't do that kind of... I didn't have that part of my life that was that R&D, what could happen if I just went this way piece. Right. I'm, I'm exaggerating that. There certainly have been elements of that. Even doing things like bookbinding, it didn't really play into my professional life directly, but it was something I really loved and did for a while. I did woodworking. That wasn't part of my professional you know, I've never done it. It's not that I've never done anything else. You know, I'm a big gardener. Oh, yeah. I love gardening. I love plants. So. Yeah, yeah, di- totally. Uh, I love bookbinding as well. I remember I was living in outside of Missoula, and I was doing a. Um, there was a night course that I took in the PM once a week, and I drive the two hours. Anyway, it was great. I love bookbinding, but it's so interesting fun. how the these elements. It's in- I find it interesting how when you pursue something that might be a little bit outside of your main focus, how it plays into surprising things come into your work. Yeah. And I do, I do almost everything of that nature. I do it. I find myself doing it full on. I have a really hard time having a sort of lightweight hobbyist relationship with these things Mm -hmm. where in my offset printing class, I didn't have to make, you know, two editions of 400 posters in four colors each and learn to hand separate colors. That didn't, I didn't have to do that. Um, when I took a bookbinding class, and this was not my first one, I'd actually taken several before that, but this one I did in, at the school, I decided, I might have taken it twice, because I can't imagine I did this the first time through. I decided to create a truly enormous book. It is, I want to say, 18 by 24, like mm-hmm. huge book uh, with a leather binding, hand sewn. Oh, wow. Um, that is a portfolio. It's, I designed this page structure where there are pages it's impossible to describe without pictures, but basically that they kind of wrap around themselves. And there's a, a one part of the page, one part of the, the signature that has slots in it to put the original art in, because it's paper. My stuff's, you know, it's comics on paper. And then one of the others has a mat essentially cut into it. And I put all my stuff into this book for nothing. You know, what was I going to do with it? You know, there was no purpose to this thing, but it also was a, um, you know, just go all in, all in on this stuff. How do you feel about this? This something has to have a purpose to do it. 
isn't the just the pleasure of that having done that that's not enough purpose for you or i mean that's ultimately you did it i mean you say there was no purpose for having done it well i get a great deal of satisfaction out of thinking about this the you know looking at this book it's silly because i don't even have the art that fits in it anymore you know it's cut to specific shapes <laughs> you're right i don't know what to do with it it's just sort of sitting in a box i also made a box for it sitting in a box in my <laughs> office um you know, I don't know, I, what do you do with this thing? I When I did woodworking, I built two cherry, cherry wood tables, which we use and are great. And I appreciate having an end result that I can do something with is really important to me. Mm-hmm. Completing things, getting things that are big, difficult projects that I have to solve is really important to me. It, and what I'm trying to express about the sort of R&D element of this is there are a lot of things, a lot of directions I've started on and pulled back from because I didn't have time or space for them. Doing painting, for example. You know, I've done very mm-hmm. little painting in my life. But I think it'd be really fun to do more painting. And But I wouldn't do it with an eye to showing in galleries. Right. You know, it's not that I would never show in a gallery or make a rule against showing in a galleries, but that's not why I would want to do it. And I'm not making covers for comic books anymore. <laughs> so I'm not going to paint a cover. And it, it, they weren't even that good when I did, you know, using paintings for comic book covers is not a great idea, but I did it. So, you know, there's this, it's like a utilitarian way of looking at making objects mm-hmm. that I would like to learn a new way to engage with the work that I'm doing that's more exploratory. Um, right. I think that would be fun. That's just a sort of, it's it's just a way that I, I would like to expand my relationship with creativity. But I say all the time to, you know, students and clients, I spend a lot of time helping people untangle the relationship that they feel between, well, how do I want to say this? I'll start with an example and see if I can go backwards into it. People wanting to make comics and feeling though that because they want to make comics, that they need to be they need to publish the comics and that the comics need to be sold. They need to find a market for them. They need to find an audience for them, um, and they potentially need to become professional cartoonists. That needs to be what they do. If they like to make comics, they have to. The end result of that is you become a professional cartoonist. Right. I can say tell you from personal experience, being a professional cartoonist is a tough life, <laughs> is hmm. not what people imagine it's going to be to, to do that as a full-time thing. And most people don't want to do it. Doesn't mean they don't want to make comics, but most people don't want to commit to that life. Um, and I think that that is fine. It's more than fine. If you know that that's the case, just don't commit to that part of it. Still make the comics, still sure. put them in front of people as you can. There's definitely an element of, you know, I teach a course called um, Authentic Visibility that's focused on helping people build audience and visibility for their work. It's a marketing class, basically, for the mm-hmm. extremely marketing-averse creative <laughs> who just cannot imagine doing this. That's who I try to help. And I recognized in developing that work in that course that forming relationships via your work, having communication, like communicating your ideas and communicating your vision to other people 
is an incredibly important part of most people's creative work most of the time. But that doesn't have to be monetized. It doesn't have to be uh, professionalized. You can separate those things. And a lot of people in this in our hyper-capitalistic society feel like if you love something, you have to make it into your job or you're not real. It's not real. You don't deserve to do the thing. You can't make time for it if it's not making money. You know, if it doesn't can't kind of pay its way, you don't deserve to do it. Uh, and all of that stuff is just garbage that's handed to us by the way our society is structured. It's not true. Now, it's not that, unfortunately, in our lives, mostly time doesn't come free. You have to pay for it somehow. But sure. if you're trying to make your creative work pay for that time, it's just a lot harder to make it, to make that happen, to make those things come out, um, where you are making enough money to pay for the time you need to make the work. It's very, very difficult, and very few people manage that. Doesn't mean you can't make any money with it, but finding other ways to put together. This is why people teach. This is why well, it's not the only reason people teach. This is why <laughs> this is one of the reasons that artists and writers teach is that it is a relatively flexible, somewhat better paid way to use your, and I'm saying that very advisedly <laughs> because it's not always the case, but to use your expertise in your art form um, to make a living so that you have time for your art. I think that that's the fantasy of it in any case. The reality of sure. it is often a lot uglier. Yeah. Um, I don't If you're familiar with Barbara Schur, one of my favorite writers, she talks about the the work that the job that is good enough that sustains the rest of your work and finding something that's in close proximity to what you want to be doing so i often say don't though i mean i say go the opposite direction um not for everybody but i was doing an interview with uh, martha rich last week who is a a commercial and fine artist here in philly um and she has a long history of working corporate jobs to support herself because mm-hmm. they, it was a clean break. When she went to her studio, all that stuff's gone. There's no sense of, and she was saying, you know, in the interview, she said she had a lot of friends who are work in the field, you know, work in illustration or whatever, and then they will be art directors as their day job. Well, you're, you're kind of getting a lot of what you need creatively at your job. You may not have the energy that you need in the studio to pursue your illustration career if you're spending all your time on being an art director. There's also an issue of if what you want to do is visual art or narrative art, so, you know, in those fields, which are, you know, all the fields, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of competition for passion-adjacent jobs in those areas. Teaching, um, for working in museums and galleries, for... Uh, art director type jobs, you know, that kind of thing. There's a lot of competition and um, frequently they are poorly paid and have no benefits. And there's a lot of drawbacks to working in those fields. And so if what you're trying to do is make enough money with that job to pay for your time in the studio to do the thing you want to be doing, or even build up, you know, have enough time to build up a a strong enough career in, in the thing that you really want to be doing that you can quit that job, you're going to have to work more hours at a low-paid job where you're helping kids, you know, in an art center. You're going to have less time for yourself than if you learn web design or, you know, uh, 
coding or, you know, you become an accountant or a bookkeeper or something like that. It's like, these are things you can do. Podcast producer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that didn't used to be a thing, but it is now, you know, so it's it's like do something that pays better for fewer hours so that you can have more hours. You'll hear about how Jessica is making space in her business for more big picture thinking and experimentation in just a minute. But first, a word from our What Works partners. What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. Jordan Milnick was a Miami blogger and a community event producer in the early 2010s. He and his team produced a bunch of successful gatherings, but none was more successful than Sketchy Miami. Jordan set his sights on having about 50 people at the very first Sketchy Miami gathering, but nearly 600 people showed up and it kept growing from there. Seeing the success of this event series, Jordan decided to go national and then global. He took Sketchy online and started building an app, which attracted tens of thousands of portrait artists. This incredible community of artists was not the portrait artist's answer to Instagram that he was banking on. So he started working on a new business model. The Sketchy team started building courses on their website, but those early classes lacked a community element, the secret sauce of Sketchy. Jordan wanted to be able to offer Sketchy community accessible classes, supportive community, and a great mobile experience. The best place to build it? Mighty Networks. Today, Sketchy Art School boasts over 12,000 members. The community is free to join, as well as an introductory course. After that, most of the courses are just $30. Jordan is excited about how Sketchy Art School has grown and the way the community has helped to make his vision a reality. What could a Mighty Network do for you and your vision? Go to MightyNetworks.com and click Success Stories to hear more of the inspiring ways creators and leaders are bringing people together with Mighty Networks. It was interesting to invite you on because we were talking about this theme in the network this month of of uh, taking a break. And that's just not always applicable to people. Like taking a break means different things for people. And one of the things that's really been really common coming up is that we just can't find the time because of the way that we have structured our relationship with our professional projects. That we haven't found a time, we haven't found the system or the confidence or the trust to be able to delegate is often a really big one and I'm very curious of like if you don't have that time now what are your plans for systematizing approaching your system to be able to create that time well I'm actually in the process of doing that right now and have much more time now than I did a few years ago I I still have two jobs. I am the chair of illustration at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, and I run Autonomous Creative. I used to have three jobs. I was also a cartoonist, but I finished my last book a couple years ago, and that helped a lot. I also have two children who are now in middle school, which also helps a lot. So a lot of things are changing (laughs) in my life that make this possible. But also, at my business, we've been growing a lot over the last few years. I now have three people who work with me part-time. And we are working very, very assiduously on building out systems that mean I do not have to be there all the time. I don't have to be on all the time. We've already gotten to the point just in the last six months where I have much more 
strategic thinking time. I'm able to see the big picture, uh, think about what next steps are instead of just having my face down in the work all the time. Super crucial first step. I see us getting much further with this within the next year or so. Um, And we're building out a lot of um, SOPs and processes. And I'm currently enrolled in um, Run Like Clockwork, the coaching program that um, Adrian Dorison runs. And that this, that is all about building out systems and delegation. So that's something that I've really been spending a bunch of time on. And just delegating in general, uh, getting better at figuring out the, the, the edges of things, you know, what's the beginning and the end of this process and who owns it and being extremely explicit about this, that this is yours. I expect the outcome of this. I don't want to see everything in the middle. <laughs> I don't need right. to see it. I trust you. And there's a, a framework they teach um, in Clockwork, which I think is really useful. And actually, I've been thinking about this, sort of adapting this. A lot of things that I learn, I try to then adapt them into language that makes sense for creative. So for example, I teach in the Creative Focus Workshop, which is one of my programs, which is about helping people actually get the work done, the stuff we're talking about here. How do you make time for the work? That's what it's about. That's what I teach. So one of the things we teach is essentially lead and lag metrics. What are the lead metrics for getting your work done? What are the lag metrics? But lead and lag was just like right over people's heads. No idea what that meant. It didn't resonate at all. So I renamed it uh, development markers and success markers, which helps you understand what they're trying to say with that language. So development markers are things that you do on a regular basis that you personally have control over that will help you that are that help you in the end reach success markers which is having completed things or having mm-hmm. developed a habit or whatever it is so development markers in our world can be things like having an unscheduled hour to look out the window that could mm-hmm. be a development marker if that actually helps you finish stuff uh, and get the work done that you want to be getting done and meet your goals it's a development marker and and so a lot i mean so much of what i do is about self-compassion and realizing what actually works for you and you know paying attention to the patterns that are part of your cycle and things that are imposed from the outside from society from your history from all that other stuff um and kind of peeling those things back and figuring out what actually works for you to get back to delegating i'm this this framework that i'm learning is ipo which is information permission and outcome that these are the three things you need in order to delegate effectively. Information, you have to, the person has to know how to do all the things. What are all the things? They need the passwords. They need the checkbook. They need the whatever, whatever the thing is they need to do what you want them to do. They have to have all of those things. And you need to set those up ahead of time and say like, here's all the thing, you know, and you work through it. You create an SOP, essentially. You create a, mm-hmm. a, a process that they can go through. And then, um, Permission is you have permission to do these things without me signing off. This is w- this is where this is the things you have permission for. These are the things you don't have permission for. So you need to ask me about this, or this is somebody else's job to handle. But this stuff is yours. And then outcome: what does success look like? So what is the end result of this? And I feel like this is something I do a lot of talking in my network. Uh, you know, I have a the Autonomous Creative Collective is our sort of umbrella group that contains the Creative Focus Workshop and uh, Authentic Visibility, and it's for current students and alumni. So it's a larger group than each, people who are enrolled in the course currently. Although they have they can retain access to the course after you know if they can if they continue with the network. So in my community, um, I talk about SOPs a lot. 
even though we're in this very creative, you know, loosey-goosey, everybody does everything kind of place, I, I, I hammer on this. I find myself talking about it in all these coaching calls all the time, the idea of pay attention to what works for you. Pay attention mm-hmm. to what you're doing over and over again. This isn't necessarily about delegation. It's about knowing what goes into a process and what decisions do you need to make. So even if you're doing an IPO for yourself, you know, and you don't have anybody to delegate to, you can still look through it and say, like, what what does success look like with this thing? When does it end? When does it begin? What are the steps? And and get that all literally written down someplace so that, that when you forget next time, which you will, you hmm. have to, you know, you start developing the habit of going like, I know I have that written down somewhere. And you like, go find the thing. You know, I have a friend who part of his SOP, he doesn't, he doesn't call it that, he's a painter, is that he has decided to uniformly work on certain canvas sizes exclusively because then it makes for easier shipping, packaging, that uniformity in size that he works on. Simple things that just in the long run has actually saved him a massive amount of time and he doesn't have to think about it every single time he approaches it. Right. I mean, the, the term SOP sounds horrible, but it's a standard operating procedure. So a writer's SOP might be, you know, make a cup of coffee, set it, you know, over here on my desk, clear off these papers so I don't have to look at them, you know, open the computer to open tab, tab, tab. These are the tabs you need to open, you know, find the this thing that was from last session, pull that open, full screen, you know, set the timer, Pomodoro, you know, there's all the kinds of things that you would do sort of naturally, but when you're stuck and you're in that moment of not a feeling like you, you just are choked. If you can just yeah. look at a list and go, the next thing is I open a thing, then you can do that. And it helps right. you get over the hump into the next step. Um, getting started is really hard. Those transitions are super hard. Yeah. I'm really interested about this permission step in this IPO framework. Oh, so crucial. If you're trying to delegate to other people, um, it is absolutely essential that you are explicit about handing over ownership to them for certain permission, certain things they have permission for. And, you know, if you're trying to test this out, you may not hand over permission for everything all at once. But whatever you know they can do, and you, you know, there may be, there also may be a phase where you're still, you know, everything has to go through an editorial check or a sort of double check or proofread. But then at some point you have to take that off, take off the training wheels and say, you go. Um, And there's another framework that goes along with this, which I think is also brilliant, which is called PIC, which is... um, if you don't have the permission, if you don't feel you're not making the decision, you see yourself not making the decision, you go back to the the person who handed this to you and you ask for um, either you need more permission, you need more information, or you need more confidence. Mm-hmm. So asking for permission from the person and saying, okay, you say you want this outcome, am I allowed to make this decision? Mm-hmm. Um, and clarifying that step or information like I got here and I realized it's a chunk missing in the middle. How do I do that? Can you make a loom for me? Whatever it is. Mm. Um, and confidence is like, this is feels really scary to me. I'm not sure this is the right decision. Let me propose what I would say and you give me feedback on it. So mm-hmm. the nice thing about the PIC framework is that 
the idea is that the person who has been handed this IPO, the permission to do the delegation to do something, has to think through, like, what am I missing out of the, like, out of the pieces that I need? What is the thing that's missing? And they come back to the person who handed them this thing and, and, and propose an answer. So you don't just come like, I need stuff. You come back with, I need these specific things. Here's how I think this should work. You know, here's what I propose. What do you think? Can you give me some feedback on this? Right. And so you can have, then you, you start to understand how the other person thinks. It's not just, you know, here's a thing. You know, if you're giving people feedback, if you're making looms when you're making feedback, if you're making, you know, videos of yourself going over something, they can see you thinking. They can, you know, when you're making a video for somebody, if you've ever done this, you will know this, where <laughs> you open up the thing and you start looking at it and you start confidently like, okay, this is what I want to say. And then you're like, oh, wait, but no, there's this. Oh, but then I was thinking that, and you like open something else, and you get another tab open, and you're here, you're there. And if the person watches that, they go, oh, that's why I didn't have that information, because it was buried mm. in this piece that she didn't know that was a thing. So perhaps I should stop pausing, start, uh, just let the loom go instead of, every time I go to like fumble around, I like, I actually put stop, I pause the recording and then come back to it after I found it. Maybe I should reconsider that position. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, the actual part of looking and like, you know, putting it in the search bar and finding, maybe not that useful. Maybe but, take that you know, out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, within reason. I had a, a right. team member come back to me last week and say, I love it when you make, when I do something and you respond in a loom and not in a comment, because then I can see your thought process as you go through it. It's really interesting to hear you say that because there's... I've recently gotten some advice to not use Loom videos in SOPs because the whole position being that Loom, the videos do not replace SOPs. Uh, the, I imagine that they just supplement. But um, yeah, so this is a thing. Like this is actually interestingly in Clockwork they say use Looms, don't use SOPs. But I think that's wrong because they're so because that you can see you won't miss anything. Like if there's a video and you're doing a process, everything gets in there. But for me, the the problem with that is I don't want to watch a twenty minute video every time, exactly. every time I need to do something. Having short videos of something specific to demonstrate seems like a really good idea. But I also want yeah. I combine I combine them. That makes sense. So it sounds like having the information, having the SOPs, kind of sets up for the permission. Because for me, allowing that permission element, that permission side, can sometimes be challenging because I have to have confidence within my own systems that the person that I've given permission to do this has all the information and can effectively do it. But if they Talk need to come the, back and ask you, then they are able to, you're able to see where with the gap, where the gap was and fill it in. I mean, I do think that the, yeah. the delegation process isn't a one and done. Yeah. You know, you, you, you create something to delegate and then gradually you realize what's missing and you fill it in. And somebody like me, who's worked independently for 30 years it's really tricky to figure out all the things that I'm relying on in my own brain to get stuff mm -hmm. done that I need to document somehow. That's hard, but it's yeah. possible. I mean, it's happening over time. And it, one of the people who works with me, actually, he's been independent for you know 20 years or whatever, and he's having to learn how to be transparent for us because he has mm -hmm. all this stuff in his head, he's doing all the things, and he just produces products, and we're like, but what? <laughs> you know, so... Yeah. Creating that transparency is really hard, but th that's, I think this is interestingly, I mean, to get back to, I think the, the people who I work with mostly are 
solo. They're, they're not delegating to anybody. Um, but the decision-making process is at the heart of everything we do. Thinking about decisions, let me think, we started talking about this because you asked, how do you, where do we, we came from someplace with this. What was that question where you're like, how do you incorporate, oh yeah, how do you incorporate your personal creative work in your life? And yeah. I said, I don't. <laughs> and I kind of never have, because everything I did was like wrapped into the job somehow or other. But that is what I'm trying to help people do. And that is what a lot of people who I work with do. They do find a way to do that. And what that's about is decision making. That is about conscious decision making, having awareness of what you're deciding, having a, making explicit the hidden dilemmas in the decisions to devote time one place or another. I, I mentioned a little bit ago this idea of having um, a feeling like y- you don't have permission to do independent, self-generated creative work if it's not making you enough money or any money. Sure. That it doesn't feel like you're allowed to spend that time. And so outing that feeling and getting it on the surface and saying like, do I believe that? Or is that something that's been handed to me and sort of laid on me by other factors in the world? Um, I think that's a really important example of uh, once you have that out there, you say, do I believe that? Do I not believe that? You have to look at it and say, am I going to lead my life by that rule? And if I don't, what do I lose? A dilemma in a literary sense is a, a choice, a decision that has both positive and nev- negative externalities, no matter what you decide. So, right. um, you know, somebody going on a quest, there's going to be reasons not to go and reasons to go, whatever, in a, in a book um, or in a, you know, some kind of narrative art. In your life, and, and we love dilemmas in, in narrative. We love art dilemmas because it makes everything interesting and it's so heart-wrenching and, and, and powerful for people to make a hard decision. And But in our own lives, we hate dilemmas. And yet we face them, I mean, by the minute, all the time, all day, you're facing dilemmas. You know, things like, am I going to face the discomfort of sitting down to my novel? Or am I going to spend an hour on Instagram? This isn't actually a dilemma. It is a real dilemma. Because spending an hour on Instagram is going to have a lot of negative externalities in the sense that you are maybe going to buy something you didn't want to buy. You're going to see stuff that makes you feel bad. You're also going to see stuff that's going to make you feel good and you may kind of enjoy it and you get to turn your brain off and maybe need a rest. Like there's not positives and negatives to it. And working on your novel, you're going to feel great that you spent that hour on it. Um, You may make a little bit of progress and get some word count done. You know, maybe you'll solve some little problem. But on the other hand, you may feel really stuck. It may feel awful to you. Maybe you haven't done it for a week and you can feel guilt. There's all these different, that's a dilemma. And so the, this decision-making process of, getting all that stuff on the surface and seeing what is it you're trying to decide and then consciously making that decision is the secret. If, if anybody could, everybody could do that, nobody needs my programs. <laughs> nobody <laughs> needs to join my group or my courses. If you can do that on your own, you're good. Cause that's it, everything comes back to that over and over and over comes back to that because when you can do that and you do it not in the moment, but ahead of time, you are captain of your life. You know, you, you are in charge and that feeling of being in charge of what happens in your life is the magic that comes out of everything that we do. You've kind of got my mind swirling a little bit. Honestly, 
I'm trying to figure out what the next, how I'm going to talk more about this. And then I want to be like, okay, how am I going to like get off this call and go start working on this <laughs> in my own life and on my, in my own creativity? I mean, that's where my mind immediately went. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I have a plan for the rest of the day. But wait a second, dilemma, I have work to do. <laughs> There you go. That is the dilemma that we were just talking about, that dilemma of like, how am I going to, what am I going to give up in order to make time for the creative work? That is the the core dilemma of the vast majority of people that I work with. All of them, really, if you think about people who even are professional creatives, which project you're going to work on when, you always are mm-hmm. saying no to something. And saying no is the biggest uh, part of this whole decision-making process. Saying yes yeah. is easy. You, everyone wants to say it. yes feels fabulous. You say yes to other people, they're happy. You say yes to yourself, you're excited. Yes is awesome. No is freaking hard, really, really hard. Is. And no to other people means they're going to be disappointed. Probably a lot less than you think they are, but it's going to happen. Um, no means that you have to uh, live with feeling like people are not 100% happy with you. But the worst no is the no to yourself. Yeah. You know, the no where you have to say, oh, this project is amazing and sexy and I want all in and you do not have the room for it. Or the no of, I have to take this, you know, um, lower paid job in order to have the time for the work that I want to be doing. But that means I can't, you know, rent this apartment I want to rent, you know, this in this neighborhood I want or this, you know, an extra bedroom or whatever it is. I mean, these are real sacrifices. And that's, those are the dilemmas that we have to grapple with. That's why we have a community. Because <laughs> everybody needs to come back and say, oh my God, how do I do this and get support? <laughs> how is this all playing out in your pers- in your, for you personally, with your business, with school, with teaching? How is that playing out for you? I mean, how are you confronting these dilemmas? How are you making these decisions? I'm sure I, I fail to make those decisions many times a day like everybody, but um, the I have gotten much, much better at this and doing things like deciding I'm not working on another graphic novel now or mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future, That's that was a real dilemma. I... I there were many, many reasons I did not want to do it, but it also means I have to live with the idea that I'm not a cartoonist right now, that that's yeah. my change of identity. Um, that's phenomenal. Th- this comes down to this this IPO thing that, I, that you were talking, that you have given someone permission and the clear outcomes are established so that when you leave, you have confidence that things are being taken care of because you put in the work to be able to get to that point. How long have you been working on getting to this point? Has it been a while? When was the last time you were able to take a vacation that you were able to do that? I mean, I took a couple of days off in the winter and a couple, like a few days last summer. Uh, yeah. It's really hard for me to, th- this is a another question in terms of, that comes up all the time with creatives. It's like, what does off look like? Because it's not like my brain's going to turn off. It's not like I'm not going to think about this stuff. Yeah. But uh, I was talking to, you know, these coaches that I'm working with in, in Clockwork and I was like, when, when does it count? <laughs> when, am I, when am I actually on vacation? And they're like, well, you can't have any deliverables. You can't have anything that you have to come back with. You know, like you're going to go away, work on this thing and bring it back. You know, you can't, ha- you know, and you can't be checking in on day to day stuff. And I was like, okay, that I can live with. I can still 
think. <laughs> I can still right. write things, but I can't have anything specific that I'm scheduled to, to work on um, while I'm gone. But the answer to your question, when has this happened before, is basically never. This has never happened before. There, there are plenty of times when I was primarily an author where mm-hmm. I was not, I didn't have... I didn't have a business like I have now where there are people dependent on me, clients, students, all that stuff. So I didn't have to check in in that way. But I would still be doing work email and thinking about, you know, working on publishing things or communicating with people. And, um, you know, I probably have had vacations previous to the, the... I've been in this business for almost six years now. So previous to that, I'm sure there were weeks here and there when I was mostly not checking in, but it still didn't really feel vacation-y. It didn't feel like I was off. And my husband's a, also a cartoonist, and so if I'm not, uh, if, if I'm off, he's not, you know, we're just like, like not, it's hard. To sync that up is really hard. Yeah, and, and you know, as, a, as an author, as an artist, we love our work, we want to be working on our work. It's, it's fun to work on your work most of the time. Mm-hmm. Some of the time. <laughs> but, you know, you end up doing it on evenings and weekends and whatever, because it doesn't feel like a job job. And there's not a, you don't clock out. There's no reason to clock out. So it's, I mean, having children was probably the most beneficial thing in some ways in terms of this, of having schedules that align with the rest of the planet. Because previous to that, we would, you know, sleep till 11, eat lunch at four, you know, have dinner at 10, maybe do some more work, go out, go to, you know, whatever. It's like, it was just all yeah, over the place. not with kids. Right, but it wasn't, um, which sounds dreamy in some ways, but in other ways, it just was screwed up and didn't support our ability to finish work or to be off. Like, we didn't, we weren't able to be off because we weren't ever really on, but we weren't really ever off, you know. So, mm-hmm. again, having that, those edges and delineation and borders is super helpful in having real downtime. And I think real downtime where you are not, again, you don't have deliverables, you don't have anything you're, you're supposed to be working on is incredibly valuable for creative people just to allow your subconscious time to stretch, you know? That's so wonderful. I've really enjoyed this conversation because it's kind of gone in a different direction than I anticipated. And I always really like when that happens. I appreciate you doing this with me. I do have one sort of, sort of, wrappy uppy kind of com- question for you and it ties into what we were just talking about it sounds like you've been consciously making some decisions on how you kind of structure y- your relationship with work your relationship you just your life so that you can have more time to go on vacation for two weeks and not have to have any deliverables what are your sort of long-term plans for this? What are you looking for? Because I'm always, personally, I'm always looking for things that are sustainably, like plans that can be sustained over a long period of time. How do you see things changing over the next few years? Do you just plan on continuing with this trajectory of making more room? Or do you have major changes planned? I don't have major changes planned. I have another program level that I'm considering, but it's pretty much in line with everything else um, and in the same Mm -hmm. system as everything else. So my plans really, um, in terms of creating more space in my life, period, and just more margin and room in the business, have to do with 
growing the business enough that I can hire more people from more full time. You know, I have not made the transition to having employees. I have contractors. I'd like to make that transition. I'd like to have um, a few full time people working where their jobs have really clean boundaries and they're able to take time. But then also the I say I'm not planning major changes, but that's a major change that would changing changing the structure so that there were full time people supporting me in areas that are really time intensive would put me in a totally different position relative to my business. Um, the business itself, I don't think will change massively in nature over that right. time, but it, it'll evolve, you know, in certain ways But I can see, you know, right now I have somebody who's very part-time community manager building her role out so that she's, you know, has much more time to do that and do a much richer job with that, bringing in somebody who's a full-time person doing administration, those kinds of things. Um, bringing in probably an assistant coach at some point, or possibly some of the people I have now, you know, giving them that role as well, so that I'm not doing all of the coaching hours. Um, all of those things would change my ability to step away for periods of time and do other things, um, both for the business and on my own. But it is, it's interesting, though, because it really does, for somebody like me who, you know, I, I was never opposed to the idea of having people working for me when I was working as an author, you know, there were times when I was working on uh, two textbooks about comics um, for, we were working on that for like eight years or something. It was a really long time. And there was thought at that point of sort of building that out into an educational business of some kind. And so this isn't the first time this has ever occurred to me to have people working for me, but this idea that you actually do in order to get that amount of specialization in your team, you have to grow to a certain level. There's a certain necessity of having a business of a certain size that I never imagined for myself. Not that I was against it, but it just never occurred to me that that would be a thing that I would have. And so I kind of have to get to about double the size that I am now, maybe a bit more, in order to achieve these goals, structurally speaking. So that's the big challenge for me is I you know, I cannot take my foot off the gas at this point. I have to figure out how to make that transition to structurally a totally different kind of business. And yeah. that's going to mean a lot of growth. And that's the that's the big challenge. Not that there aren't a lot it. of creative people out there who need my help, because there are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm convinced that I need your help. <laughs> come I am join current- us. Welcome. Come join us. <laughs> I am currently reading your second textbook. Was it Mastering Comics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one I'm currently reading. Loving it. I'm going to personally look into this. I really appreciate you doing this with me and showing all your patience with me. I appreciate you. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. It's fun. Um, I guess this is the kind of question you ask at the end of podcasts. Is there specifically, other than the offers that you've talked to us about, is there any specific places that we can find you on the socials and whatnot? Well, you can find me at my website, which is jessicaabel.com. Um, that's A-B-E-L. And you can find out about the Creative Focus Workshop and Authentic Visibility there. I am not super active on social media, but I am uh, mostly, if I'm anywhere, I'm on Instagram at Visible Woman. Excellent. Thank you. 
I appreciate you being on the show. (laughs) Well, it was fun. Thanks for asking me. I have been following Jessica and her work from a distance for several years. And if you were to look up the definition of success in the lexicon of my mind, you would find a picture of Jessica Abel just down the page from sand dollars, snowstorms, and sourdough bread. I will never stop daydreaming. It is core to my identity, and I am quite fond of it. But I do recognize that if I ever want to see my daydreams become my reality, it's going to take some effort on my part. Make plans or life makes plans for you, as they say. Find out more about Jessica Abel and the Autonomous Creative at jessicaable.com. Next week, I'm sharing the final conversation in this series, a conversation with my friend, Mark Butler. Mark has been around the block on overworking, taking long breaks, and figuring out the way he wants to do business to support himself, his family, and his team. We tackle all of that and more. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is the supreme leader, Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is the splendid Emily Kilduff. And this episode was edited by the sorcerer himself, Marty Seafield. Seafield.